Good morning. A great joy to welcome you today. If you're new with us today, my name is David Cassidy. I'm the senior pastor here at Spanish River Church, and we're delighted to open up God's Word with you this morning. We're in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9. And what we're doing is we're going through this Gospel together. We've, um, we started in Advent, and we're, we're following Jesus all the way to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. And we're doing this not so we simply have a kind of download of information about Jesus, though that's vital and important, but so that we experience a heart transformation as we learn what it means to become his followers, to sit at his feet and hear his word and let that word shape and transform us. And as we follow in his path and learn whole new ways of living, what it means to become the disciples of Jesus. The word for disciple was an ancient word that simply meant an apprentice, An apprentice is someone who is in a committed relationship to a master teacher so that the character and the skills, the expertise of that master become the students. And so it's vital for us to know that as Christians, we are not simply affirming a set of doctrines, though it's certainly important that we do so, but that we experience the transformation of our lives so that more and more the heart, the mind of Christ, the ways of Christ become our own ways. People regularly say God loves us and accepts us where we are. Yes, he does. He does it in Christ. But God loves you too much to leave you as you are. And so he is working to change us and transform us according to the image of Christ. And where we come to this morning in Matthew chapter 9 is this. Jesus has been giving the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down from that mountain and into a valley of human need. And in Matthew chapter 8, we looked at it last week, he begins to minister to that need. He takes his disciples across a lake. A great storm arises. He calms the wind and the waves. And that elicits a question in the mouths of the awestruck disciples. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That question, who is Jesus? That's the question that Matthew is setting before us. It was before the disciples. They were coming to the conclusion that while the person before them, their rabbi, was 100% man, he was more than that as well. He was God become man, the creator of the heavens and the earth, their creator, the one in whom all things are held together by the word of his power. He had fashioned them and he had come to save them. And he takes them on this journey They come now back into a situation, back across the waters, to a situation in which there is vast human suffering. And Jesus begins to heal people, multitudes of people. And it's a remarkable chapter, Matthew chapter 9, that records all of these wondrous works of healing. And that's what we want to talk about for a few minutes this morning, the healing ministry of Jesus. If you read through Matthew chapter 9, you'll discover that there is a man who is paralyzed, whether through an injury or an illness, and he is lowered by friends down before Jesus. Jesus speaks to him, your sins are forgiven. Then he heals him. And the man whose limbs would not move are loosed, and suddenly, can you imagine it? Can you imagine it? That you'd not been able to move for years, and suddenly you can leap and dance. What a thought. And then Jesus 
comes to two men who cannot see. Can you imagine for just a moment that you had spent either your entire life or year after year after year in the darkness of blindness and everything that that meant in the ancient Near Eastern world? There was no medical treatment. There, you're, you had matter-encrusted eyes. You were thought to be accursed. Flies swirled around your head. And all you could ever hope for was whatever people would give you because you were a beggar. And suddenly, suddenly, your eyes were open, and the very first thing you see is the face of Jesus looking back at you. Imagine that. Imagine for just a moment what it was like for a man who couldn't hear anymore, and he couldn't speak anymore, and suddenly Jesus speaks to that man, and his ears are opened, and his tongue is loosed. Imagine what it was like for the father of a ruler of the synagogue whose daughter had died and Jesus takes her by the hand and raises her up and suddenly this daughter that they were mourning is now restored to them and the joy of that moment. Imagine the woman who because of a chronic hemorrhage has been alienated from her own family and can't go into God's presence. She's ceremonially unclean and suddenly she's made well in her body and now everything in her life which was ruined has been restored. That's just Matthew 9. Paralyzed limbs, loosed. Tongues released in praise, feet dancing with joy, cleansed and restored, raised from the dead, resurrection. Every single one of these images, it turns out, are also pictures of the central message of every healing Jesus performs. They're images of salvation. People who are dead and come to life. Eyes that couldn't see and are now opened. Tongues that were stopped up but now praise. People that couldn't walk and now can run after Jesus. Every single one of these images are pictures of what it means for the gospel to take hold of our lives. And that's why right at the center of Matthew chapter 9 is a dinner party that's thrown by somebody who was an outcast. We started this whole series with this text. It's a dinner party thrown by the author, by Matthew, whose Hebrew name was Levi. He was a tax collector. He was a social outcast. The Romans used him and they despised him. And because he was used by the Romans, the Jews, his fellows hated him. He was an oppressive person. He was dark. And if you are a person who is living on the margins and really living a criminal existence, all of your friends tend to be criminal as well. This is a mafia get-together. That's what this is. This is the Sopranos for lunch at Matthew's house, and Jesus is there. All the religious people who are on the outskirts looking in the windows going, how can he sit down for dinner with this crazy, creepy group of people? And right in the middle of it, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, he speaks to the, the religious crowd and he says to them beautiful words, it is not those who are well who have no need of the physician, it is it is those who are sick. Jesus reveals himself here 
as the physician, the great physician. And that's why all of these healings are taking place. Jesus healed people because as the great physician, every single one of these healings were dealing with something central to the core sickness that afflicts the entire human race. If you go back to that man who was lowered down in front of Jesus, you'll remember this. And it starts in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. This man, is, Jesus is in a house. The roof is ripped open. This man is lowered down by friends. He's set down before Jesus. And the very first thing Jesus says to him, you would think that, and this is what all the friends were hoping for, the friends who brought him to Jesus, Jesus had a reputation as being a person who could not only teach wise words, but had power to heal. They were hoping that their friend who they carried there would be walking home. And so they go to all this trouble and they rip the roof open and they lower him down. Can I just tell you, you need friends like that. You need roof-ripping friends. Every one of us need friends like that. And they carried him to Jesus and they lowered him in front of Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus looked at him lying on the floor and he said to him, not get up and walk. He said to him, your sins are forgiven. Because the greatest need that the man had was not his limbs being healed, but his heart being restored. You see, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he quoted Isaiah 61, because I've been anointed to preach the gospel. I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring this good news to people, and here's what the good news does. It releases prisoners, and it heals broken hearts. And you could be in the most spectacular and pristine and perfect of health this morning. You may have already been on the treadmill and had a kale smoothie. (laughs) And you disdain coffee and donuts. You would not even approach them. You could be the perfection of health. You may have your own show on YouTube helping other people be healthy. But the human heart is broken and needs healing. And that's why Jesus has a healing ministry. Now, of course, people say, well, does Jesus still heal today? He does. He does heal people today. Not everyone who's prayed for, of course, is healed. But I have seen him heal people. In the spring of 1982, the phone rang in my flat in London. I was invited to come and pray for a teenage boy, son of good friends who were in the ministry in South London in Forest Hill, and uh, he had leukemia. I couldn't go to that particular gathering because of a previous commitment, but two of my friends, the one who was the director of youth with a mission in the UK at that time, and another friend of mine, a pastor from the United States, went and they prayed for that young man. Several months later, He was in the hospital. This young man was in the hospital. They went and they prayed for him. Several months later, like towards the end of 1982, his parents were sitting with the doctors and they said, we're stopping treatment on him. They said, well, why why are you stopping treatment? He said, well, actually, from this date right here, there was no leukemia that showed up in his system. And it was the exact date of when he was prayed for. But we didn't want to say anything to you because we were afraid that the cancer might return as quickly as it had disappeared. So have I seen God heal people? Yes, I have. And I've also stood at the gravesides of people who I prayed for who weren't healed. And so when we talk about Jesus' healing ministry, we know that that occurs. And it also occurs not just through miraculous means, but through the 
providential intervention of great medical advances. A member of this church just a couple of weeks ago was skiing, felt faint, fell back, was suffering a heart attack. But through the quick action of skilled and trained EMTs who were applying modern technology, they were able to restart his heart. And then a, a quick surgery took place. A stent was placed in, his, in, in, in a clogged artery. And the next day, he's sitting up in bed, and he's texting back to me, I'll see you Sunday. 20 years ago, I'd have had to say, I'll see you in heaven. And so it's important for us to remember that God uses providentially a whole host of ways to bring healing to us. But in whatever ways God brings healing to our lives, every single one of these have a particular purpose in mind that's greater than the physical relief itself. Because can I tell you something about every single person in Matthew 9? Like the little girl who's raised from the dead. What happened? She lived a wonderful life and she died. I always felt a little sorry for Lazarus. Because he'd been dead four days and Jesus raised him. But what happened to him? He died. He died again. It's like later Lazarus when he saw death coming was like, oh, you again. Because even if we're physically healed, we all know the exits are clearly marked. And whatever recovery we experience, we know it's only temporary. You see, what's the problem? Why is death so prevalent? Why do we still have to deal with that? Because death is pervasive in the entire creation. We have it in ourselves. We see it in the world. We see it in the universe. Suns and stars themselves die. Where does death come from? The wages of sin is death. And we experience it. See, one of the problems we have is a thin view of sin. We don't understand Jesus' healing ministry because we have a thin view of sin and how pervasive it is and its outcome, the bad news of what's occurred because of humankind's high-handed rebellion against God to begin with. We tend to think of sin as doing something we shouldn't have done. There was a line, a boundary we were not supposed to cross, and we stuck our toe over it. Okay, some of us didn't stick our toe over it. Some of us just jumped head, in, head, head first into the deep end. There was a line we weren't supposed to cross, and we crossed it. But the Bible doesn't describe sin simply as a line not to cross, and you go across it. The Bible describes sin that way, but it also adds a standard that we're called to attain, and we don't. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You say, well, what's the standard? Get ready, perfection. Just perfection. That's all. Jesus said, you shall be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. That's all. So if you're keeping score this morning, how are you doing? I think we tend to view the Ten Commandments as ten separate panes of glass in a great window. And we go, well, I threw a baseball through that one and a rock through that one. I got one and four in bad shape, but I got the rest of the stuff intact. But the scriptures say that if you've broken one commandment, you've broken all of the commandments. So it's not separate panes. It's just one giant window. And if you broke one, you broke them all. And Jesus said you have to be what? Perfect. We're toast. What are we going to do? 
We crossed a line. We didn't meet the standard. But it also says that sin is something called lawlessness, anomia, that there's an impulse in us that says, you can't tell me what's right and wrong. Don't tell me what to do. I make my own rules. I'm my own law. That means you're lawless. You won't have anybody impose standards upon you. And then it says very, very clearly that sin is a power, a power that is in the human soul, and it controls. So that it works this way. Every single time you hear something good, before you're, before you're a Christian, before you're a Christian, you hear something good, and you go, yeah, no. And people say, well, would you like to study the Bible? You go, uh, no, thanks. That's somebody else's mail. I don't have time for that. You don't have time for the good. And if... This is true. You see it in a little child. If you say to a child, parents, you know this. If you say to like a three-year-old, don't do that. What does every child do? They do it. They do it. They're like, okay. Why did you do that? I just told you not to do that. I know, I know, I know. What is that? It's called the power of sin. When Jesus comes on the scene, He comes not only to forgive the sins we've committed by omission and commission, he comes as well to break the power of sin. And this is what all of these healings are about. Sinners, the sick, Jesus said, need, what does he say in Matthew 9, 12? A physician. You need a physician. And this physician is an extraordinary physician. He offers the cure of souls, and every physical healing points towards it. You see, they're called in the Bible signs, signs and wonders. There are three great periods of signs and wonders in the Bible. It begins with Moses, Moses and the Exodus. Signs and wonders, that's the very first time the phrase shows up. But these signs and wonders were things like the Nile being turned into blood and frogs and lice and locusts and all of these things going on. What was going on in that? Signs and wonders. When Pharaoh heard about signs and wonders, he wasn't rejoicing. Signs and wonders were taking place, but they were signs and wonders of judgment on Egypt, but deliverance for Israel. There was a second great period of signs and wonders. Elijah and Elisha, signs and wonders. Miracles were done. Elijah had seven. Elisha prayed for a double portion, so he ends up with 14 miracles in his life. It was a very unusual season that took place. Then Jesus and the apostles come on the scene. There was was this incredible explosion, an effusion, an outpouring of signs and wonders that took place. These three great periods have one thing in common. Every single one of these signs and wonders were pointing beyond themselves in two ways. First of all, they're revealing who the true God is. And secondly, they were delivering people. They were liberating people. They're revealing who God is. Light and Goshen, darkness in the land of Egypt because God was saying to Egypt, Ra, the sun God, won't save you. I am the light of your life. And Elijah and Elisha come on the scene and they say to Israel, you can't bow down before Baal anymore. Watch this fire fall from heaven. 
and consume the sacrifice of the rocks and the stones and the water and everything around it. I'm the Lord, your God. I'm the one who brought you. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who will keep you. I'm the Lord who is your Savior. And then Jesus comes on the scene, the one who is the Word made flesh, and he begins to do these signs and wonders. And even liberal theologians who don't believe in the divinity of Jesus will say in their, in, as scholars that these miracles in some way certainly took place. That's why so many people were following Jesus. He was clearly a person who not only had great teaching, there were many great teachers, but he had power. There was something that God was doing through him and with him in a unique and powerful way. What were they called? They were called signs. What's the purpose of a sign? A sign points beyond itself. A sign points beyond itself to a greater reality. If you're driving down I-95, you get about, I don't know, a couple miles north of Fort Lauderdale, and you see a big sign that says Miami. If you stop and get out and go, I thought it was going to be bigger than this. People would say, would you please get back in your car and keep going? Because the sign is simply pointing you to what's beyond. The problem with some parts of evangelicalism is that they see signs and they stop and park there. Now remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is tongues. And so we, <laughs> and so we see a sign and we get all caught up in the sign and we just stop there. Then there's another section of evangelicalism way over here that says there are no signs anymore. Well, I've got a kid who recovered from leukemia in London 40 years ago who begs to differ. All the signs, however, point beyond themselves, and they point to Jesus because he is the physician for our bodies and our souls. And that's why this morning you may have come with sickness and illness that's chronic and clinging, you may have come with mental anguish and things which are holding you. What's the answer to that? It's the same thing in dealing with that that we understand the state of our own hearts. You take that woman with the issue of blood. Because she is hemorrhaging, and it's been going on for 12 years, she is ceremonially unclean. And so she can't go into the temple, she can't go into the synagogue, she's cut off from her family, so she is spiritually cut off, she is relationally cut off, she is socially cut off, and that is why, if you read here in Matthew chapter 9, it says that she, she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. See, she didn't want anyone to know that she was around. She wasn't supposed to be in crowds of people. She wasn't supposed to be there. She's ceremonially unclean. And in that culture, if you're ceremonially unclean and you touch something holy, then you make the holy thing unclean. So she didn't want to touch the holy Savior and make him unclean. And so she snuck up on Jesus. And she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. So you can imagine her sneaking through the crowd, kind of cutting through, and she's just like when Jesus goes by, she goes... All right, and then as soon as she did that, she felt two things. The first thing was Jesus' power and virtue went through her and healed her, and she knew she was healed. And then she felt something else because Jesus stopped and said, okay, oh, okay, who touched me? She was like, me. And Jesus said, daughter, come here. And he said to her, 
Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you whole. You see, the word salvation is a word that means to make whole. And that's why every healing that occurs is a picture of what God is going to do with humanity and creation, which is broken. Do I need to tell us this morning? Do I need to remind us this morning that creation and the nations and the world we live in is broken? Do I need to really remind us that our families are broken, that our hearts are shattered, but the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor? He has sent me to preach recovery of sight to the blind and release the prisoners and to heal the brokenhearted. And how does the brokenhearted receive healing? Your faith has made you whole. She simply reached out in trust and in faith, and she received So this morning, if you have mental anguish, clinging anxiety, depression, and fear. This morning, if you have clinging illness that has trapped you for years, there is a great physician. But every single bit of the healing that's involved in that is taken care of because Jesus is the Savior and it says this about him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. Isaiah 53. The great physician is here to heal and restore. And those healings aren't permanent. They await the day when all things are made new and the whole universe is whole and made made one and and, and unified again, made whole. How? Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung between heaven and earth and he shed his blood to forgive your sins and to heal the whole world. And my friends, this morning, if you'll do what that woman in Matthew chapter 9 did, you'll just reach out towards him. And with your faith, say, Jesus, I bring you my uncleanness. You'll be surprised what happens. You see, here's what she thought. As an unclean person, she thought, if I touch the holy, the holy will become unclean. Is that what happened? No. Because Jesus is greater than the law. The law said he would become unholy, but that's not what happened. What happened is his holiness got into her and healed her. And ultimately, that happened at the cross. At the cross, as Jesus hung there, our sins were counted to him. And the holy became unholy in that moment. And in that moment, his righteousness was transferred to us. And you and I who were sinners became righteous. My friends, put your faith in Jesus, the great physician. This morning, we're going to pray. And at the end of the service, we're just going to open up the space down here to pray for anyone who wants healing. Whether that's in a psychological form, a physical form, But remember, the greatest healing of all is the forgiveness of sins. And if you haven't yet received Christ, 
I want to invite you to receive him so that your heart is made whole. Let's pray to the great physician. Lord, you are the healer of all things. You are the great physician, and it is by your stripes that we are healed. Thank you that you came, that you did not reject the sick. Thank you that you did not reject the broken. Thank you that you did not reject sinners. But king of our hearts, you came. And now we can reach to you in faith and receive your virtue that restores our broken lives. I pray for every broken person in the room, including myself. Lord, let our brokenness invite your touch that makes us whole. And it's in Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.